I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, which is not quite true about this poem, but we'll talk more about that, uh, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Well, once again, Poem Talk has gone on the road, this time to Montreal, where Erin Moray has kindly, kindly, kindly agreed to host us in her lovely, cozy apartment. <laughs> Uh, and for this special episode, I'm joined by Deanna Fong, a critic and scholar widely published, a doctoral candidate in English at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, where her research focuses on audio media, event theory, literary communities, and affective labor. A key member of the federally funded Spoken Web Project. Do we say federally funded? I guess for we Canada? do. Yes. <laughs> and and Spoken Web and uh, the project is a consortium maker, I guess, in process of Audio Poetry Archives, who with several others co-directs the Audio Multimedia Archive of Canadian poet Fred Waugh, and who has been cataloging the audio archives of Japanese-Canadian poet and painter Roy Kiyuka. And by Kara Shearer, director of the AMP, we say AMP, not AMP, lab, and associate professor of English at the University of British Columbia at Okanagan, who also directs The Soundbox, a collection of literary audio recordings from the 1960s through the 90s, originally on reels, and Karis's favorite material mode, Cassettes, who is collaborating with Deanna on research into the Vancouver literary community of the 60s and 70s, and who recently co-authored with Deanna, the same Deanna, <laughs> a piece called Gender Affective Labor and Community Building Through Literary Audio Artifacts, and whose awesome and intimidating Strava page, which I follow daily, consistently motivates me to get away from my desk and run bike or row, <laughs> and by the aforementioned generous host of today's episode, Aaron Moray, eminent Canadian poet and translator of poetry, most notably that of Galician poets, among them Rosalia de Castro, whose recent works include the play poem Cabaret Capusta, did I pronounce that right? Mm -hmm. 2015, Planetary Noise, great book, the poetry of Aaron Moray, which is selected poems, published by Wesley in 2017, her translation of Wilson Bueno's Paraguayan Sea, Night Boat, 2017, a finalist for a 2018 Best Translated Book Award, and a 30th anniversary reissue of Furious, Turning Point Book, Anansi, 2018, and whose new work, The Elements, being published by Anansi in Toronto, will appear in 2019. Erin, thank you once again for hosting us. It's my pleasure. I get all of you into the house. I know, it's great. This is a great spot for a poem talk. Karis and Deanna, in one way, or the, well, you especially, Karis, traveled a long way to get here, so thank you for doing that. My pleasure. And Deanna, thanks for joining us. Also a pleasure. This is great. Well, the four of us are here today to talk about a poem by Maria, formerly known more as Gladys Hindmarch, who was at the center of the emerging avant-garde literary scene in the early 1960s, attended the 1963 Vancouver Poetry Con Conference, created interesting and important connections with Black Mountain poets, among many others, has published three books, poems in dozens of magazines, made audio recordings as a feminist and materialist and communitarian, 
The poem we're going to discuss now is currently still unpublished. Is that correct? That's correct. Titled Kitsilano, 1963-1969. Deanna and Karis have been preparing a collected works of Hindmarch for publication in a few months before this gathering today made an eight minute long recording of Hindmarch with her performing our poem. So here now is Maria Hindmarch reading Kitsilano 1963 to 1969. Kitsilano 1963-69 for Judy Williams Fraser. 1963, I lived on the corner of you and York on the second floor above a, a corner store with my sister Lenny and boyfriend, soon-to-be husband, Lee Hoover, her friend, Joanne Huffman, and her boyfriend, Mike Sawyer. Then, Elsie Young, just left Robert, who became Ziza Wong, who met her lover, Jack Wise, next door. Then my sister Mary, and my boyfriend, soon-to-be later, Unby, husband, Cliff Anstein. Below us, Bill Bissett and Martina and Ulia, then painter-jogger Gordon Payne and Marilyn, who becomes my friend later. Then Bill again, then Gordon again. Next to us, Bing Tong, Jay Bancroft, and often Marion Penner, Rick Clark, across and across the landing, John and Susan Newlove, and children fathered by Jerry Gilbert, later the Ridgeways. And next to them, directly opposite us, Jerry Geisler, New Design Gallery, and Helen Sturry and Children. Arf kitchen faced theirs, apple pies in my oven, and stew or toast in theirs. We could smell everything, like the time we fell asleep as port hawks simmered in my big red pot, charred and burned and almost caught on fire. Would have if Jerry hadn't woken us up, and that building a total tinderbox. Always worried Bill would start one. My bedroom, study, faced the old Molson side and the Broad Street Bridge, and I could watch the West End and high rises and the planetarium grow and white sheets on a clothesline across the city, the street dry. As I sit in my bay window and write and mark on a smooth board cut to fit exactly the sill, I glance up and see people like you and Jamie, and Carol, and Joan, and Marcy, and the Trumans, and the Gads, and the Lathams, and Lanny Beckman, walking up and down U Street. Open the window and shout, drop by on your way back. Dropping by, everybody did it. Days filled with coffee, tea, poetry, cigarette smoke, crises, trips, talkity, talk, talk, painting hard edge, strong colored, also intricate silver point mandalas and collages. A gal in a Kelowna red one summery Saturday night became a party of a hundred or even more. Dancing my bedroom to one music on a tape recorder, dancing in the other to another, drumming in the kitchen, talking in the room with the blue tiles fireplace. So many bodies I couldn't hear the music from inside the hallway just saw the taller heads moving together to different beats in almost darkness. That crazy night at the Was place, if it wasn't a party of this kind, 
the everybody landing on the that bed, everybody kissing everybody. We had to go outside to pee. Something to do with that small space that it was so tight that everybody had to rub everybody simply to go anywhere. It was gorgeous. After the Vancouver Poetry Conference, 1963, Roy Cayuca started dropping by when he left his studio. There'd always be a light on somewhere in our building, and he could visit any of us, separately or clustered. One time he told me he had a painting he wanted to give me, but it was big and heavy. He borrowed a truck, and someone helped him up the dusty, always dirty long stairs with hoarfrost, which we hung on a wall in a room just big enough to hold my round oak table. Used to be the Bowerings. They bought a whole household of furniture for $80, and when they moved, they gave it to Joan, and then when she moved, she stored it with me. A wall that later Elsa and I tore apart with a screwdriver and a hammer, shouting angry hexes at Robert all the way. After and during that conference, Olson, Creeley, Duncan, Levertov, Avison, Whalen, Ginsberg, Roy and I became friends, and there were readings in my room every second Sunday. Red cast iron pot full of bean soup, corn chowder, spicy meatball, vegetable stew, simmering, and then cheese scones in the oven. People would come and read their new work one week, and the next week there'd be a Tisch meeting with Daphne Marlatt, Dan McLeod, Pete Oxier, David Call, and David Dawson. Rent, 60 a month, didn't change. In some years it was cold. The wind so cold on the, the side facing the North Shore that hydro was $60 per month and that wall frozen behind my pillows. The police were something else. They felt they had the right to question anybody. So Cliff would be up at the laundromat on 4th and just go to Jackson's to get some hamburger and be walking back with an economics book in one hand and meat wrapped in brown paper in the other, and they stop him and ask him what he was doing. And my friend Way Wargo would get stopped almost every second time he'd drop in to visit. Where are you going? Why? why? How long will you be? Someone was always getting busted. Someone was always tripping out. Someone was always visiting from or going to Europe or Japan. Here is a journal entry on June 9th, evening of the first ever national leaders debate on TV. I'm looking forward to seeing Trudeau. Hope he gets pushed into onto answering more directly than he has in the past. I, like many others, including every gay man I know, do have a crush on him. He has so much more style than any Canadian politician so far. I mean style in the true sense of the word. It is him, not affected. Cliff, of course, doesn't trust him at all and thinks he's a sellout. I don't go that far, yeah. But I do think that compromising is the only way a politician can work in this country. And I do not like all the PR razzmatazz, fundraising and allegiances that go into just getting elected. Our system seems to be based on gullibility. Coming home at night, 
whether from downtown or the beach, or Paul the Butcher's, or Elsie's the Bakeries, the Bakers. I looked. I loved looking up at my north-facing windows. Goldy gold mesh curtains, light filtering through. So warm and so inviting. There's so much we can talk about. I don't even. I almost don't know where to start. But I'll just start somewhat arbitrarily by asking us to talk about the pronouns. It's an I poem, but it's also an us poem, right? Below us, our kitchen, and so forth. So, Karis, why is that important? If it is, I assume you think it's important. Yeah, I, I do. And um, for Maria, I think who was very much part of it. She was a community builder. Um, you know, and, and art is produced through community, right? And so one of the things I love about this poem is the way that it catalogs the community by naming people person after person and the sort of shifting relationships among them. Deanna, you've talked about this too. Yeah, well, I think oftentimes when we use the first person plural pronoun in poetry, it can become very fraught because we don't know who we're talking about when we talk about we. We have a very concrete sense of who we're talking about here because Maria really goes to great lengths to really kind of list this community assemblage and all the people who are a part of it who sort of wander in and wander out, um, who are there across large swaths of time. Oftentimes, Erin, when, when um, an I poem that's a documentary poem uh, starts to switch to we, we feel somehow that a presumption is being made. How could this one I talk about everybody? But in this poem, I don't get, I don't feel that concern somehow. How does she pull that off? I mean, I assume you agree that... Yeah, I, I think it's partly through uh, what Deanna just said about um, the the naming. And even though we, the reader, I mean, I know who many of these people are or came to know who many of these people are. But on the other hand, the, the reader might not know who any of them are. Uh, there is this kind of sense of the bringing together and uh, kind of this effervescence of, of community during this process, in and through this process of creation, you know, that, that we's inhabited by a lot of people and not just the author being presumptuous. Yeah. Karis, you want to say more about that documentary poetics that, that makes we a natural thing rather than a how dare you talk for the rest of us thing? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things she's doing is she's highlighting the community connections, right? And we're seeing both the proximity of, of those bodies in the community through um, their connection through smell. Um, and so we have, um, you know, a person who's smelling the burning pork roast on the stove, right? And, and they have to be close enough, living close enough to actually smell that. And so um, those connections come alive through that proximity, through, um, you know, the catalog of names, mm. the senses, the... Um, the gifts that are given and exchanged through them, mm -hmm. uh, amongst them, uh, the painting, the furniture. Um, so you have this real sense, I think, of, of proximity. Deanna, I know you've thought a lot about community, aesthetic communitarianism with its socio-political dimensions. The mm -hmm. corner has become an important word. It was an important word in sociology and ethnography, mm -hmm. maybe before we in our field realized its importance, but we are, it's established right away in this poem. I lived on the corner of you in York, above a corner store. Mm -hmm. Can you riff on corner and the importance to the, 
issues that are really of interest to you here? Yeah, well, I think that the corner becomes a stand-in. It's like an interface, right, between these sort of domestic spheres and, uh, and the sort of wider public, the community public. So it's a place where those two things meet in a kind of messy way. Um, and again, that there are always people in flux sort of coming in and out of that personal space so that it's never a firm divide, but something that's very porous. Um, and I think this is also something that we see at the end of the, uh, the poem as well, maybe mirrored in the idea of the, the curtains as the speaker is looking out and, and having these beautiful sort of golden wafting curtains in the light. But that's also the interface, right? Like that's the, the sort of sense of being home, but that home is uh, surrounded by a community that the speaker is very deeply uh, attached to and a part of. I was so moved by the ending. I mean, so much of this poem is, this was where we lived, and this is how we look outward from where we lived, that the community got created by a lot of people sharing food and partying and being together. And in the end, she's outside looking back up at the windows which she used to see out. So there's this mm -hmm. fabulous, it's not an inversion, it's an expansion of the space. Yeah, Karen. And she just leaves it with us. Yeah, 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 she does. Um, yeah. It becomes more, it becomes more, pardon the word, more conventional lyric at the end, but it doesn't have the effect of a move toward more something more conventional. In another poem, it, it really sort of seals the deal. Sorry. Um, no, I was just thinking, I mean, Kitsilano is a, a neighborhood, you know, the, there's a corner and the neighborhood is, you know, in the communities built out from that. Aaron, you used to live in this neighborhood, so you have a different connection to it from us. Kind of slightly after. Oh yeah, very much so. I mean, I this, these people were from a generation older than me, but when I sort of hearing that this was going on in poetry and stuff like that, that was what brought me to Vancouver. And it was almost, I mean, I, I went to Vancouver in 74, so it was, these people had mostly moved, you know, by then. But um, there was uh, a lot of gentrification had started and there was a lot of upward pressure on things, I guess. But but I can see the corner. I can see that building. I know I know what it's like to live in one of those. They're like San Francisco apartment buildings where you can see the light under your neighbor's door and everything, every but time everybody goes, <clears throat> you can hear it in three <laughs> apartments, you know, so that no, there is no uh, private life, in a sense, in, in that kind of surrounding. And we Which don't, is very positive in this poem. That's yeah, a good we thing. don't really. I think people absorb that. And in the poem, too, it leaves us with this really sense not... Of, of poesis, like of, of the actual um, structure behind the scenes of a finished poem, the actual structure of making. And, and I think that's where what, what um, Deanna and Karis, when they're talking about effective labor and about things that go on behind the, the poem, it's not disconnected from the poem, it's absolutely connected with the process of making the poem. Mm -hmm. I think you have a sense in this poem also that, you know, it's not a nostalgic poem, it's not necessarily constructing, it, it takes great pleasure in community and the proximity of bodies in the, the small room where the bodies are squished together um, and the sort of larger, the building where, you know, we can hear people, we can smell food um, and the larger community, but it's not, it's aware that those communities are shifting, right? The relations between people are, among people are shifting. And we also have the presence of the police, right? And so there's a, you know, the police state the, the state of the building being cold. I mean, there's always, we're aware of the threat and the gentrification and the things that start to shift that community away from. Yeah, watching the high rises grow on the skyline, which, uh, yeah. Especially. Yeah, on the West End across the way. Mm -hmm. 
we know more so who we are when we realize the things that are going to threaten the communitarianism that has for the moment been set up. Mm -hmm. um, food, kitchens, domestic spaces, and art. Um, mm -hmm. I loved the thing about the porkhocks, which you definitely can smell almost from the poem. From the text. <laughs> Absolutely. But then it turns out, parenthetically, we learn, learn that they're being cleaned for an art project. <laughs> Isn't that so fucking great? Yeah. So rather than being a uh, criticizable cliche, oh, this is such a, you know, woman's approach to, to poetic communitarianism, mm -hmm. you know, at mentioning all the guys associated, of course, women as well, associated with the famous Vancouver gathering, rather than feeling like, oh, too bad she's domestic domesticizing the memories here, you feel somehow she's reminding us that art had to happen mm -hmm. in that kind of, can, can the three of you talk about that, please? It's so important. Yeah. Well, I think I love the way that this gives cues. Like it, it, in the language that it uses, it puts artistic production and domestic reproduction in really, really close proximity. So for example, like sort of on the second page there, where she's talking about hard-edged painting, which is uh, the style that Roy Kiyoka painted in. Um, in the early in the late 50s and, and eventually gave up in the early 60s because he felt it wasn't it didn't allow him to sort of express himself subjectively in the way that he wanted to but so this sort of impersonal mode of painting is right up against talkity talk 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 right mm -hmm. and so that those things are never far away from one another and so we can't think of artistic production as sort of happening elsewhere outside of the domestic the domestic sphere the sort of our sort of private interactions they're really deeply impressed upon by those activities um, and I think it's true. I mean, thinking about the, the cat is had a, it was a cue that was, that was the cat's like we're talking about the importance of spaces, the human spaces, and the, the cat, cat starts to jump on me, and she wouldn't let her. I so know. Now you can listen to her. That's fine. That's right. She, this is our penalty. <laughs> Sorry, Carol. Um, no, that's okay. I, I was thinking, you know, to uh, to build on what Deanna was saying. The Vancouver Poetry Conference. You know, you had the public panels and the the readings and the talks, but so much of what um, the participants, you know, migrate towards when they're reflecting on that conference is the parties and the sociality of it and, and those conversations as really, you know, social conversations as really meaningful moments of connection where they got to, uh, they got to exchange ideas, they got to make connections that would, you know, be friendships that would last long term. Aaron, this must really resonate with you, not necessarily about the Vancouver group, but just about the way you got into this in the first place and what attracted you to the sociality of experimenting in art. Well, and, and sharing and just having, I wanted to have like great conversations with people and not just always be talking about banal things. And it just seemed, cause I had read uh, the first issues of the Capilano Review and there was always interviews in the Capilano Review, and I mean, there's some interviews where Maria Heinmarch is there, Daphne Marlet, different people are talking about something, and they'd always be in somebody's house, um, just just chatting and, and about things to do with poetry. And to me, it just seemed so rich and and dynamic and full. And uh, I mean, I knew they were another generation; they weren't going to invite me over to their house. But on the other hand, um, I wanted to be in the place where that was happening. Deanna, you went to record this poem with her, and let's all all four of us, I guess, think about what she did when she reread this poem. She probably hadn't 
reread in a long time. Yeah. What did she do? Well, she, uh, I, we were going to make the recording and she said, oh, just, I just want to take a second because I want to make sure that this relationship is clear, that this person is related to this person. And so she sort of started editing on the fly, um, I think because she just wanted to, you know, um, represent the community in a, in a faithful way. In she kind of updates way. information for us. Definitely, definitely. So we did a lot of takes and sort of the, the reading process also became something of an, an editing process as well. Erin, mm -hmm. while we were in the poem talk way of things, listening to the recording, we had a conversation which listeners to this recording won't hear. And Erin said, I noticed, I think it was you who said this, I noticed that the excerpt from her journal about the Trudeau stuff, um, Pierre. Yeah, it's Pierre Elliott. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she didn't alter. Why not? Well, except that when she introduced it, she didn't say 1968, which is in the printed uh, copy of the poem. So it could be, we could be talking about Trudeau Jr. Yeah. <laughs> But a kind of fealty like, to documentaryism, she really wanted to keep a quote from a journal intact. But I, I, th I think that's interesting, like these two kind of documentary formats, the, the documentary poem and then this insertion of, of a journal, which is a documentary kind of prose project not meant for, for public consumption. But normally, like in, in documentary theatre, the pieces are composed out of bits of journals and bits of interviews you did with people and bits of things people remember and this and that and that, so that the poem unfolds like that along its length, but it also has these depths that resonate in and out, that journal, the thing about the police, the whole history of the police and the counterculture in Vancouver and, and various other things. So that the poem's almost, it has these effects and these effects, so it's almost like it weaves a curtain. And it's, I mean, the poet, I, we keep saying a poem, but Maria always corrects me when I say that because it, she thinks of it as a, a text. Um, I think she would say that, a text. Yeah. Uh, not a poem, is how she put it. And once it's liberated from the you-can't-change-it poem category, <laughs> right, it becomes more of a witnessing mm -hmm. document of the time which she wants to have right, make right. Yeah, and, and speak to the present moment as well, right, through these sort of iterative um, changes and clarifications. But it's, it, it sort of reminds me of the way, um, I mean, it's, it is like a curtain, the poem, and that a curtain, if the, the wind is blowing, we identify as a curtain, but it's actually never visually the same because it's moving. And this poem moves like that too. And it, it reminds me of, of a definition of, of Chus Pado saying what, what stillness is in the poem is actually like, the, um, like the, the person who bounces on the tightrope dancer who's bouncing on the tightrope, who's perfectly still, but actually is always moving. Hmm. Holy shit, Erin Marais, wait a minute. You not that was not only ridiculously brilliant in itself, but it, it's the ending of the poem. Yeah. She's really telling us at the end about how she means to be a witness to her own communality. Well, also, if I could just say one thing about matter. the end, end of the poem, just because it, it sort of follows, she ends with, with the curtain, but in a, in a you know, documentary theater, of course, in theater, the curtain comes down at the end. This curtain closes off the scene at the end. Mm -hmm. And her curtain, when it, at the end of the piece, the curtain opens out to us. To the, oh, to Jesus. The so we're, we're situated here. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that same instability of the text is also reflected in the, you know, the instability of the relationships amongst the people, right? The community is always <laughs> slightly shifting. People's names are changing. Mm-hmm. Someone is soon to be husband, then unhusband, or not unhusband, but... Uh, soon to be and then unbe. Unbe. She says of her own... Uh, Say husband. that again. Uh, she said, the line is, my boyfriend, soon to be, later unbe husband. So it's like got these like all like three different or four different temporal relations just in that single sentence, trying to represent something that's, you know, spanning across years and and very very dynamic. I'm a f- an idiot. I'm finally getting this. I really am finally <laughs> getting this. Um, looking up at my north facing windows, goldy gold mesh curtains. All I can think of is ew. That's so dated. That style of curtain. <laughs> On the other hand, and that and then my second thought is. This is what she wants. The $60 a month bohemianism of the corner, we should not sniff at from our much different way of inhabiting spaces as artists and intellectuals in cities that, in the case of Vancouver, have been prohibitively gentrified. Mm -hmm. She's saying, you know, okay, sniff at the goldy gold mesh curtains in what would now be a $4,000 a month apartment. No, mm-hmm. this is what I'm telling you about it, and you're going to be a witness to it too. You've got to be a witness to it too. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the Aaron Mores who move out there in '74, but <laughs> anyone who moves into an urban space. Unfortunately, probably not Vancouver because it's too expensive, but yeah. some other place. You get to be a witness to your own communitarianism, and that's the only way art's going to be made of this kind. Mm-hmm. In a deeply tactile, material, sensory way. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay, let's look at one change she made. When, we, when she got to uh, someone, probably Dallas Selman helped me do some moving. What was she doing? Uh, it was big and heavy. What was big and heavy? Oh, painting. Horfrost. Horfrost. Right. Yeah. So, so she deci- in the performance that you recorded, she, someone, probably Dallas Selman, she, does it, she eliminates that. Can we, right? So, but maybe she's thinking, well, when I wrote this, I thought it was Dallas. Now I know it wasn't Dallas. Or why should I speculate? I don't know. What do you? How do you read that? That omission. Well, she's. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities. For one, she's as a prose writer, somebody who's very attuned to the rhythm of yeah. of her speech when she performs aloud, and has you know really extensive performance notes about how she wants to read. And so it's possible that in the moment, it didn't quite seem to fit the sort of natural rhythm as it was unfolding, and she uh, omitted it. Or it's also possible she was working from a different version of the text, and I can't quite recall like which one, which edited version we had uh, used for this particular recording. So either one is possible, really. Yeah. After the Vancouver Poetry Conference, 1963, Roy Cayuca started dropping by when he left his studio. There'd always be a light on somewhere in our building, and he could visit any of us separately or clustered. One time he told me he had a painting he wanted to give me, but it was big and heavy. He borrowed a truck and someone helped him up the dusty, always dirty long stairs with hoarfrost, which we hung on a wall in a room just big enough to hold my round oak table. Well, poem talk is generally a happy show, but I'm going to, and we've been pretty happy but in this conversation, but I'm going to invite the three of you to be more critical and negative if you want. The, especially in the U.S., 
in you know sort of post new american poetry circles and scholars interested in that turn and the van there's been a fetishization of the vancouver conference and i would invite the three of you if you want to say something critical about how that all worked out there is a constructive criticism of that here and it's worth spelling out so who wants to go first I'd be happy to. Um, I think one of the things to pick up on the last thing I said is, you know, often we see people talking about uh, the Vancouver Poetry Conference as Creeley, Olson, Duncan. Um, Levertov is occasionally mentioned. Avison is almost never mentioned because she's an inconvenient uh, name in this, terms of the dominant narrative that people and want to talk Canadian. about. And also Canadian. And she's Canadian. She's Canadian. She's uh, sort of affiliated with, with Creeley, to Creeley's poetics to some extent at the time, but she's very quickly moves away from from that. And so, um, the names of you know the presence of women. We also know that there were all kinds of women who participated in that conference who were almost never mentioned. Um, Helen Sontoff, Jane Rule, uh, Angela Bowering, um, and there's a kind of conviviality and sociality behind uh, the events that are often that are talked about in which women facilitated, participated, etc. Um, and I think you, here you get Heinmarch pointing to that. I was just going to insert just something about the, that I thought of and then I forgot and I just remembered again, just about the, the idea of conviviality too and the idea of communi the community that's involved in poesis in the making, which we end up with a poem on the page somebody's published it, somebody put their name, maybe not the person who wrote everything mm -hmm. in it, but um, that, that behind that, this idea of conviviality the shared pot that gets used for various things um, is a non-materialistic, uh, points to a non-materialistic way of life. Mm. Like it's not a society of consumption here. It's not a society of, of exploitation of people elsewhere so that I can have a car and I can have a shirt. It's the sharing of what we have. And what's the, the wealth is in the conversation. It's in the poises, it's in the making. And that to me is like, that's, you know, when I learned about this and went there, I was like, that's how I want to live. Right. Two kinds of, wow, you're ridiculous. Two kinds of, <laughs> two kinds of make, collaborative making. One is the red pot, which is going to be food. And the other is the oak table. Even though she doesn't say that's my writing table, mm -hmm. I just get the feeling there's a metapoetic moment there when she's saying, you know, if she's giving us, it was the bowerings and they brought, she has the whole thing about how it got there and it, but it's her oak table, but the pronoun her doesn't quite work for it because it's, it's ours, it's theirs. Mm -hmm. You just explained that oak table. But she also Aaron. says that she wrote in a bay window with a board cut to fit in the window. That was her desk. And you know, no doubt it's the same window that at the end of the poem we're looking up at. So basically we're seeing the writer writing about us. <laughs> I have one more question which I'd like Karis to start on and then we'll, we'll go around and just offer final thoughts on sure. something you came here to say but didn't have a chance to yet. Um, Karis, uh, there's a pedagogy implicit here I know you do really experimental things with your students, such as go into the room with, I think, actual cassette tapes, which most of them have probably never seen. And you, I don't know what you do. Do you have them snip the magnetic tape and oh, edit? And um, those, are, those are the workshops that Deanna and I have done, uh, press play workshops where, yes, we've, um, these are your invention. Oh. <laughs> um, we take the tape, you know, we, we hold the tapes and talk about yeah. 
um, our relationship to the tapes, and then we destroy them. And then we put them back together. Which is just part of the whole thing, but there's something, the choice of this poem, I invite you to say something. It would be counterintuitive for a lot of people listening to this conversation. What, is the, what, is the, what are the pedagogical implications of Mariah Heinmarch's intervention in the whole question of memory archive witnessing testimony? Archive meaning largely a sound archive, journals, etc. Why is teaching so, why, how can teaching change yeah. as a result of what we learn from this? I mean, for me, the, the sort of, the foundation of teaching is the conversation. It is the, you know, whether you want to call it Socratic dialogue, but I mean, to me, it is about facilitating a conversation. And so, um, particularly with audio recordings, I think the conversation, my students are actually about to make their own conversations about audio recordings. I think it is a, a a really valuable critical mode, that one that is probably more, even more um, important for literary audio than the essay. Um, and so I'm interested in how we can stage those conversations in the classroom, but also how students themselves can stage conversations um, as a contribution to criticism. Mm. Mm. Thank you. So final thoughts, everyone gets a chance to say something you meant to say, but haven't had a chance to yet. Deanna, are you ready for that? Sure. I just wanted to maybe point to this, uh, one of my favorite moments in the poem, which is this scenario of dancing in my bedroom to music on a tape recorder, dancing in the other bedroom to a transistor radio, two bongo drummers in the kitchen, talking in the room with the blue tile fireplace, so many bodies. But I just love, it, it gets us an almost kind of auditory landscape um, of all these things happening simultaneously in, the, in all, like, you know, the almost in like a dadaist, like simultaneous poem. Um, but it doesn't, you know, it's not, it's, it's very unornamented description. And it sort of just lets the noise of that space filter in without doing too much to it. Uh, just, you know, pointing to the experience of having been there and being a part of something that's, you know, indescribable in a way because it has so many facets to it. Thank you. Aaron, final thought? Well. I'm still into the, you know, being a cook and everything, into the big red pot. <laughs> and also into, uh, which is making me think of what Deanna was saying and the, the dancing people in a small space. And I, I guess I just wanted to, the, the poem at the end points out to us and to the future in, a, in the, the way that it ends. But I wanted to point out to the, the midden that's there in Quetzalano. And that Quetzalano was... Um, was a member of what we would call a chief, but a member, a head, a man of a, of a very important family um, in an indigenous, one of the indigenous nations that inhabited that exact area. And it was the CPR, the Canadian Pacific Railway, which like fraudulently bought that land from the indigenous people and to create a suburb for rich people outside of the west end of Vancouver. So they, when I read Kitsilano, I always remember Kitsilano, and he's one of the, the all the West Coast peoples had a um, ethos of the potlatch, oh. which is um, the, the giving away. And it, I always think of this, the pot in Kitsilano, with, with this ethos of giving that that is continued, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and that hopefully we can continue onwards. I mean, uh, I think Modpo has that, is, the, is a potlatch too. Thank you. And um, I just wanted to bring that into the picture. That's really cool. So the 60s era communitarianism, 
of the Bohemian poets, etc., actually is very historical, and whether it intended or not, was very respectful of the ancestors. Well, the, I think the ancestors were kind of feeding it, even if they didn't know. They right. Were yeah. Smoking pot, but um, <laughs> <laughs> boiling pot pot. <laughs> Karis, you have a final thought. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's so many lines in here that I just gravitate towards, but I, you know, this, the dropping by. Um, I was thinking the other night about it, this, you know, the idea of spontaneity and um, that re relationship between, like, you know, I said staging conversations earlier, and I think there is a certain amount of care and construction that goes into making a really good conversation and a good party and a good social s space. Um, but there's also spontaneity to it, right, where it's unscripted. And, um, and so one of the things I love about this poem is the way that it creates the conditions for community building, but a lot of it is opening the window and saying, you know, hey, do you want to drop by? Um, and so I hope we don't lose that in, you know, in the creation of those, those moments, right? And it seems mm -hmm. to me that teaching, um, you know, the institution puts a lot of pressure on us to make things really scripted and really um, predetermined. And uh, I'm reminded, you know, the value of, of the spontaneous unscripted moments. Forgive me for overstating a response to that or being too excited about a response to that, but I think our decision to do this in Aaron's dining room, and, and Aaron's too modest to even speak to this, but everyone I talked to, I told you this the other night, their reputation is, you know, Aaron is so nice, she's so generous with her space, and she does, she's sort of a, you know, one poet, communitarian, hopeful that this kind of thing will, keep happening, mm -hmm. and then I think of our decision to, this is, despite it being scripted within an inch of its life in terms of its format, this poem talk conversation was unprepared, we didn't, yeah. it's spontaneous, so maybe there's like a C plus B minus version of what you just said going on in this conversation, and your decision, not me as the producer saying, we're going to talk about this poem, it's you, the two of you, uh, Karis and Deanna saying, let's do this because it'll raise all these issues. So there's something very meta about it. I have two final thoughts real quick. One is uh, also a shout out to Karis because when I got to the gallon of Kelowna red, I thought of you because it's the only Kelowna I know. You're in Kelowna. Yes. K-E-L-O-W-N-A, which is four or five hours east of Vancouver. This is where you live and teach. And Aaron taught me before we went on the air that there's Kelowna Red and Kelowna White and Gallon. In that of, era. In that era. And now we, these don't exist. <laughs> but I mean, there was something about a jug of wine that goes along with the scene here. And actually, my second comment has a lot to do with that, which is the sexy body pressing partying thing that's going on, which either is or isn't uh, something you want to just talk about now with changing attitudes about people pressing bodies against each other at parties because of all the ways in which that can go wrong. Um, mm -hmm. The kind of openness about sexuality, but I, I, that passage, which is very sexy, is also about the community and not about, it's not about sex in the way uh, the old poets' communities could do it in a way that creates hierarchies and wrongnesses. Um, and I think she reinforces that by when she gets to that part in her reading, the recording for you, she leaves Creeley out 
she goes downstairs to pee because the line at the bathroom is too long and it's not her and Creeley, it's just her and someone else. I won't go any further with that other than to say that this is not nostalgic. Even with the Kelowna Red, mm -hmm. cheap gown, we all do this, right? I mean, those of us who are maybe, you know, just thinking about the day when Boone's Farm in my neighborhood wine was really cheap and you can get really high and excited very inexpensively. Yes. And, you know, in, in, the, in Greenwich Village, you know, you could pay between 30 and $100 a month and just write, and you can't do that anymore, but the ideas still pertain, and she is not nostalgic about that. Mm -hmm. She wants us to find our own way to do that. Yeah, yeah. totally. Well said. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or all of us, if we're quick, to spread wide our narrow hands, to gather a little something really poetically good, to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Who wants to recommend something first? Gather some paradise. Deanna, you must be ready. Sure. Uh, so I would like to recommend Daniela France's book, Friendly Fire, which came out with Talon Books in 2016. Currently doing some writing about that and I'm uh, just receiving its gifts every day. Um, Danielle is a poet working, living and working in Vancouver. She's currently working on uh, a reading series that uh, is sort of talking about the, you know, where intimacy and sort of social structure meet. It's called uh, Hashtag Post Dildo, which is uh, really great. She's writing a project uh, that's going to come out as a book afterward that, and also is, uh, you know, going to talk about the conversations that emerge from that reading group. So shout out to Daniela France. Thank you. Karis, gather some paradise. Um, well, I just learned yesterday about an amazing project coming out of McGill that Miranda Hickman is co-organizing called Poetry Matters. And they are, um, maybe I won't say too much about it other than it can be found online on the McGill website. Um, and it's, um, they'll be adjudicating a fairly large poetry prize that's uh, uh, a fairly large a poetry fairly large poetry prize. You're just going to dangle that out there yeah. to people who yeah. listen to this. Um, okay. And you can use the interweb to look it up. Okay, great. Poetry Aaron, matters. gather some paradise. By the way, you're paradise. Oh, <laughs> you are. I don't know. Isn't she paradise? I don't know. But then you're so modest. <laughs> just say you're paradise and we'll move on. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> and next case. But I, no, I just want to point out that some the, in the spirit of... Um, of poesis and making and things that happen in making is uh, to fo follow Lisa Robertson's Instagram feed, which is Office of Sar Architecture, because not only do you have images of fabrics, uh, meals, uh, cheeses, and uh, trees and things, but you also she takes screenshots of her work, the uh, Baudelaire Fractal, which will probably appear, I think, to be finished and appear at the end of next year, maybe the beginning of the following year from from probably from Coach House. I don't know, I'm just inventing all that, but but you can watch her creating uh, a oh, work cool. kind of in real time and see some of the uh, image, just some still images from what she's written that day. So that's pretty What's amazing. her Instagram handle? Is it it's just like Office Lisa? for Soft Architecture. But if you look Office. her up, either as Lisa Robertson or Office for Soft yeah. Architecture. I don't know if her page is closed or you have to be invited or not. I forget, but... Uh, I have two quick gathering paradises. One is... Uh, drawn in Quarterly Bookstore, uh, Deanna, and we filmed a Modpo Plus video. There are two of them, actually. Uh, and Michael Nardone had brought us there, and I just think it's great. And a shout-out to any... If you're ever in Montreal, anybody who's listening to this, or if you live in Montreal and you haven't been there, Drawn in Quarterly, you should go. And the second is 
I recently reread to prepare to hang out a little bit with Aaron Moray uh, during this extended visit to Montreal, Planetary Noise, the poetry of Aaron Moray, and I just want to shout that out. Uh, Wesleyan, 2017, you have to read it. I imagine that you yourself, I'm so glad you're mic'd because you're probably going to want to say something, that you yourself had to go through the exercise of someone else choosing poems to create a sense of the arc of your work from the 70s to now, mm -hmm. and there it is. And it's remarkable for the rest of us, with a great introduction. Of By Shannon McGuire, I just want to Shannon's speak fantastic introduction. I'm sure you winced, like, oh, how is she gonna make generalizations? Because it's very brief. Um, but wow, what a sense of the arc of the work. And for the first time, your readers, instead of having to find this, that, and the other thing, this book here, you know, we're starting to get a sense of the whole movement. So I just gathered some paradise. Lucky me. Okay. <laughs> you, are, to say. you are so funny. Well, that's all the gallon jugs of Kelowna Red we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Erin Moray, Kara Shearer, and Deanna Fong. And again to Erin for hosting us at her place and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, my traveling colleagues, Chris Martin, Anna Strong Safford, and Zach Cardner. Snaps for them, right? And to Zach, who is, for this and all episodes, Poem Talk's editor. And a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, back in Philadelphia, I'll be joined by another Montrealer, Angela Carr, Ooh. and Ooh. also by Anna Vitali and Mythali Jagannathan to talk about Divya Victor's poem, W is for Walt Whitman's Soul. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>